Okay, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. And over the last several weeks, we've been studying how the early church was able to function and grow like wildfire. And the early church had great success when it came to preaching to the people. But when it came to preaching to the priests, the success was almost zero. And uh, in chapter 12, they're going to preach indirectly to the politicians. And the results are going to be zero. And that's why you were told in 1 Corinthians that the Lord doesn't choose those that are thought of as being highly esteemed amongst men. He will choose the base sort. He will choose the nondescript sort. He will choose the type of person which is very easily forgotten. So don't lose heart if you are trying to win souls to the Lord. And I made the case back when I went through Mark's gospel when the Lord stood in the presence of Pilate and Herod that he wasn't able to win those people to Christ either. And that's not a failure on the Lord's part. That's not a failure on our part. But the reality is that Many are called, but few are chosen, and therefore we are expected to be faithful unto death. We are like the postman. We put the letters to the letterbox, but whether or not you open the letter is down to yourself. We are simply the Lord's vehicle to bring souls unto him. So just keep those thoughts in mind, please, because sometimes we can get a little uh, disillusioned, somewhat disgruntled when we are trying to win souls to the Lord. But as I say, the Lord stood in the presence of Pilate and Herod, and neither of those two got saved. Peter would be uh, beaten with John back in the earlier chapters of Acts of the Apostles. And they too were unable to win Gamaliel and other Jewish leaders to the Lord. And here we're going to read about Herod. This will be the second Herod found in Scripture. The first Herod is Herod the Great, an evil tyrant. And he was responsible for the death of the innocents back in Matthew chapter 2. And it was that Herod that interrogated the Magi's, the wise men. And he, of course, is a type of the Antichrist. So this Herod will be Archelaus, who came after Herod the Great. And what's interesting to me, I'll just say this as a quick footnote, is that when the Lord Jesus Christ stood in the presence of Herod and he put the Lord to death, the Lord didn't destroy Herod. Because it says in John's Gospel how the Son of Man has power to lay his life down and take it again. Nobody forced the Lord to come to the earth and die for our sins he volunteered to come to the earth and die for our sins and that needs to be stressed because i spent many a times on the street debating this with muslims that the lord wasn't coerced he didn't have to come and die for our sins but he volunteered to come and die for our sins and that's why the lord didn't destroy archelaus because that was his whole remit he came to die for our sins so keep those thoughts in mind please and uh, I will ask the Lord to bless today's live stream, today's live broadcast, and maybe a blessing to those that are listening in all over the world. Acts chapter 12, let's start today's broadcast, if we may, in verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. Herod the king was a very powerful man, and yet, in reality, he was limited as to what he could do. He served under the authority of the Roman governor. He was a puppet leader, and the Jews despised him for it. If you go back to the Second World War, if you look at France, for example, under the German occupation, they were given leaders to rule over them. And the French people, the French resistance, despised such people. The same sort of thing is happening here in Acts chapter 12. The Jewish people have been given this so-called king to reign over them, to rule over them. 
And from memory, he's part Syrian. He's not a full-blown Jew. And he's really a puppet. He's a puppet leader from uh, pagan Rome. And it says he stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. Of course, the church has always suffered. And the early church were winning souls left, right and centre. The early church were incredibly holy and precious to the Lord. And the word of God says how it's precious in the eyes of the Lord concerning the death of his saints. Hold that thought. Look at verse 2, please. And he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. James, the son of Zebedee, I believe. And it says he killed him with a sword. He probably beheaded him like he did with John the Baptist back in the Gospels. And this form of execution, beheading, is going to be found again in the Great Tribulation. And you look around the world and you see these Islamists beheading Christians and so-called enemies of Allah, the moon god. They like the term beheading, they like the uh, mode to behead people. But to go back to the Old Testament, you see King David coming up against Goliath. And King David, a teenager, is fighting Goliath. And he takes on Goliath. But what's really interesting there is that David takes the sword of Goliath and kills him with his own sword. So what we need to do as Bible-believing Christians is use the sword in a spiritual sense to decapitate false religions. Take their writings and use them against themselves. But David, back in the Old Testament, a type of Christ, literally takes the head off Goliath, and he does so to demonstrate that the Lord God is supreme. David was also a teenager, fighting a grown man who had six fingers, was it? Six toes? And it says he did so to honour the children of Israel, to honour the Lord God of Israel. But here, this wicked king, this tyrant, no doubt infested with unclean spirits, a type of the Antichrist, kills James, the son of Zebedee. But what's interesting to me here is that he doesn't zoom in on Peter, Simon Peter. And let me say this, if I may please, that if Simon Peter was the Pope of Rome, if Simon Peter was the main leader in the early church, wouldn't it be more plausible? Wouldn't it be more obvious for Herod the king to zoom in and detain Simon Peter and put him to death. Don't you think his secret police would have told Herod that Simon Peter was the Pope of the early church? But he goes for James, the son of Zebedee, instead. Three. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. Unleavened bread, going back to the Old Testament, and it pleased the Jews that James was put to death. All those that live righteously will suffer persecution. So now he's going to take Peter also. Now up until this time, Peter and John, the son of Zebedee, have been going around parts of Israel, preaching to the Jews, not the Gentiles, and winning the Jews to the Lord, not the Gentiles. But here James has come into the equation. But they're still focusing, the early church that is, on Jewry, on Israel. For, and when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison, and delivered him to four Cortinians of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Easter, pagan, unleavened bread, Jewish. For the Bible believer, neither event has any relevance to us. Can I say that? As a Bible believer, we don't celebrate Easter. We don't celebrate Christmas. We don't celebrate unleavened bread, Passover, the Feast of Trumpets or Pentecost. We are Bible-believing Christians. We are set free from that. And we were told in Galatians chapter 3 how there is neither Jew 
nor Gentile, male or female. We have been baptized into the body of Christ. But let me say this. If you wish to celebrate certain feast days or certain holy days or the Lord's Day, for example, like today, you can do so. And if you don't wish to do so, that's fine as well. You were told that very clearly back in Romans chapter 14. But Christmas with trees, Christmas with candles, Christmas with cards is problematic. And if you don't believe me, go back to Jeremiah. I think it's Jeremiah 44, which speaks about the tree, which was cut down and how that was abhorrent to the Lord. And of course, the problem with uh, Jeremiah 44, if you want to do a, a faithful exegesis on it, the tree itself wasn't necessarily the problem. It was the worship which surrounded the tree. So keep that in mind. But here, unleavened bread, Jewish, Easter, pagan, and if you are a King James Bible believer, you probably know that this has been argued over for a long time now, whether or not this term Easter is correct or not. It is correct because Herod was a pagan. Herod was not a Bible-believing Christian. So he would have been keeping Easter. He would have been celebrating Easter like many in Christendom do today. But I'll say this as a quick footnote, that we at this ministry will use Easter and Christmas to witness to people about the Lord Jesus Christ. Especially Christmas, because people go onto the streets to buy presents around this time of the year. They go on the streets to get caught up in the so-called festivities. So we can and we do use such events to win souls to the Lord. But I guess my main thoughts from verses 1 down to 4 is how there are two feast days, two worlds, pretty much working independently of one another. And for us living today, neither event has any direct doctrinal application. 5. Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church under God for him. Pray without ceasing, and as somebody once said, pray until you pray. When something goes wrong in your life, when somebody is in great need of help and assistance, drop what you're doing and start praying. Now you should be praying throughout your day anyway, but sometimes you'll need to go the extra mile, and sometimes you'll need to fast as well. But it says here how prayer was made without ceasing, of the church under God for him. Peter no doubt was a great leader. Peter no doubt was greatly beloved in the early church. And that's why Herod has gone to great lengths to detain him, to punish him. But as always, the Lord is behind everything. So don't ever think that you are in dire straits. Don't think the Lord has ever given up on you. Things may be very bleak for you, but always remember this, that the Lord is sovereign. Six, and when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. And the keepers before the door kept the prison. So here's a picture of Peter being detained. He's literally sandwiched between two soldiers. He's sleeping as well. And yet unlike Paul in Acts chapter 16, he's not singing. Now I'm not going to highlight that to suggest that Peter was somehow uh, inferior or somehow less sanctified than Paul was. Although I think Peter on many occasions, was more fleshly, like you and I can be. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But here, he has been chained between two soldiers and the keepers, plural, before the door kept the prison. The whole point of this scripture is to demonstrate what is about to occur. Something supernatural. There was a man called Houdini many years ago who was a great magician, and he would go around doing great acts. And even today, most magicians don't know how he did what he did. He was very much ahead of himself, he was very much the father 
of the modern world of magic. And of course, we know magic is prohibited in scripture. And we get to uh, chapter 19, I think it is, of the scripture. It, it mentions the saved sinners who went out and burnt all their books about magic and the occult. And that's something which uh, will be relevant to those that have come out of the occult. They're going to take the time to burn their books, so on and so forth. But this is going to pitch a great miracle. Not an illusion like Houdini and people from his uh, clique. This is going to be a supernatural event. Seven. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him. And a light shined in the prison. And he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. The angel of the Lord has been dispatched. And he smites Peter and tells him to arise up quickly, and his chains fell off from his hands. The angel of the Lord in the New Testament, and I showed you this from chapter 8, as far as I can decipher anyway, is the Holy Spirit. Back in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord was the Lord Jesus Christ. We call that a Christophany, a pre-incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the New Testament, it is the Holy Spirit. And the Lord has sent the Holy Spirit himself down to earth to deal with this situation. And it says he smote Peter on the side. He literally struck him on the side to wake him up. Which shows me that angels can not only speak, they can not only eat, but they can also physically touch you. And if you want further proof of that, look at the book of Job, where it says the Lord allowed Satan, a fallen angel, a cherub, to be more precise, to physically attack Job. And sometimes we as Christians can be oppressed by unclean spirits. And sometimes we as Christians can be physically assaulted by unclean spirits. That's pretty rare. But like I said a few moments ago, always keep us in mind that the Lord of the Bible is sovereign. So whatever happens to you happens because he has allowed it to happen. Eight. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself and bind on thy sandals. And so he did. And he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee and follow me. You can't miss it, can you? The Lord has simply stepped into the equation here. He's bypassed this group of Roman soldiers, at least half a dozen of them. And now he's telling Peter what he needs to do. Nine. And he went out and followed him and was not that it was true, which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. Poor old Peter. Once again, he's not quite aware of what's going on. He's slightly one step behind the event as to what is occurring. And this shows me that Peter wasn't infallible. Peter was a good man, but uh, like you and I, he had two natures. Like you and I, he was complex. And yet he would only be infallible, along with James, along with Jude, along with John, along with Matthew, along with Mark, and along with Luke, when they wrote the New Testament. That was the only time such men were infallible. And that's why we say the writings are inspired. Not the writers, the writings, all scripture. Is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped unto all good works. The writings are inspired, not the writers. So here Peter is a little slow to realize what is occurring, but let's not be too hard on him. He has been sleeping. This angel has come from nowhere. And I like the last part of verse 8 and follow me. Follow me. What does the Lord say to him? Peter, in the Gospel of John, follow thou me. Do you follow the Lord? Are you a disciple of the Lord? He's told here to follow him. But look at verse 10, please. When they were past the first and second ward, they came unto the iron gate that leadeth unto the city, 
which opened to them of his own accord. And they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. I love the attention to detail here. And Dr. Luke doesn't worry about giving us such detail. And this really does picture to me that the Lord sees and hears everything. And he writes down everything that he sees and hears, which is a pretty frightening thought. Because you are told by your thoughts and your words and your deeds, you'll be justified, you'll be uh, judged. And at the great white throne judgment, if you're not saved, everything that you've ever done will be brought to light. But it says they went past the first and the second ward and came unto the iron gate that leadeth unto the city. Anybody reading this around 35, 36, 39 AD would know exactly where this was which opened to them of his own accord. It's clearly supernatural. There's no illusion here. There's no trickery here. There's no flash photography or there's no uh, special effects which you see in Hollywood. This is simply the Lord stepping in and dealing with such an event. And it says at the end of verse 10, one last time, and forthwith the angel departed from him. You're on your own now, Peter. He's been set free from this incarceration, this disgusting, damp, dirty cell, sandwiched between two superstitious, pagan Gentiles, unsaved people. And now it's time for Peter to make his own way into the world. I don't get too carried away with these verses and start to offer a lot of spiritual application. It's easy to do that. You can so easily spiritualize these verses and get material here, which not necessarily is, is intended by Dr. Luke. But let's just leave these 10 verses as they are in reference to a supernatural event which has just occurred. Look at verse 11, please. And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. He's finally realized what has just occurred. And again, he affirms how his angel was sent from the Lord in reference to the Holy Spirit out of the hand of Herod and from all of the expectation of the people of the Jews. So two things, the angel of the Lord has to be deity. Secondly, this great hostility that the early church were experiencing must have been a great uh, pain for them because the early church were Jewish. The early church wanted their peers to be saved. And yet at the same time, the early church were very conscious that Jewry, for the most part, was at enmity with the early church. And unfortunately, there was, there's still a lot of... Uh, Hostility amongst the Jewish community to Jews that get saved. And I've seen programs about saved Jews trying to witness to unsaved Jews. It's still pretty heavy. It's still pretty heavy. And yet we, as Bible believers, have to pray for the Jews to be saved and come to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 12, please. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. Where many were gathered together praying. Now the early churches met predominantly in homes. We call them house churches. And yet what also happened in the New Testament. And you get that from James chapter 1. Was how these synagogues became places of worship. The early church were predominantly Jewish. As I keep saying. And it's important to keep reaffirming that. And they obviously were part of synagogues of some kind. And when those Jews got saved. These synagogues became churches. And that's why the Jews had such a solid foundation. And in the tribulation, Jews will be saved and Jews will be meeting again in synagogues in the great tribulation. But here, you were told about a house where many were gathered together praying. It clearly is a house church. Now, the Gentiles, for the most part, met in house churches. 
because the Gentiles didn't have the Jewish uh, apparatus behind them. The Gentiles were very much outside of the remits of the Lord. So they got saved and they would meet in people's homes. But here this early group of Jewish believers, interestingly enough, is meeting in a house. And here John Mark is cited. And we believe it's this man, John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And it says one more time, where many, where many were gathered together praying. Pray without ceasing. And this is what I said you know, all along. This is what I've been saying all along from this broadcast and other broadcasts. That pray until you pray. Intercede for those that you know to be sincere. And also pray for your enemies. Not easy, I know. Look at 13. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken, named Rhoda. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened up the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. She couldn't believe what was occurring. She couldn't believe what was happening right in front of her eyes. This shows the complexity of Bible-believing Christians. They've been praying, probably for hours, hoping that the Lord would set Peter free. And he does. And yet when Peter arrives at this lady's house, he's knocking at the door. And he's there for quite a while knocking at the door. And it says that she knew Peter's voice, she recognised his voice, and yet she didn't open the door for gladness. It's a paradox, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. She now wants to let others know that he's outside knocking at the door. And again, this shows the complexity and also shows how the two natures work in the believer. Hold that thought. 15. And he said unto her, Thou art mad. But she constantly affirmed, that it was even so. Then said they, It is his angel. Do you get that? What a strange scripture. 15 one more time. And they said unto her, Thou art mad. But she constantly affirmed that it was so. Then said they, It is his angel. They thought it was his angel. They thought it was his guardian angel. Now, the early church, going back to the Old Testament, not all of them, but some held to the belief that we have guardian angels. And the Catholic Church also think and teach that we have guardian angels. I think what's more likely to be correct isn't that we have a, a literal guardian angel who goes everywhere with us and he's physically there to watch over us. I think what's more likely is that we have an angel in heaven who sees everything that occurs. And you get that from Matthew 18 and also Luke 15. And when I get to Revelation, it speaks about the church as having an angel. And it says, write this letter to the angel... At Sardis, write this angel that is at Ephesus. Write this letter to the angel at Laodicea. Now, I don't quite understand what that's all about, but in a nutshell, I think what that's really telling us is that we have angels in heaven which somehow are interceding for us or are somehow watching us, are somehow interacting with each other in reference to what we're doing on the earth. It's a very difficult subject to quite grasp but 15 one more time, and they said unto her, Thou art mad. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then said they, It is his angel. Why couldn't they just open the door and let him in? Because they're fearful. The early Jews were in fear. The early Jews were locked themselves in the upper room in fear of the Jews. Fear is a terrible thing. Fear of man bringeth a snare, but fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So I'm not overly surprised that they are thinking that this is his angel, his guardian angel. But like I say, to have a belief or to hold to a literal belief that we have guardian angels per se, which go everywhere with us, is problematic. As I say, I think it's more in reference to do with what we have up in heaven. 
And that's pictured in Revelation 12, where there's a battle in heaven. But they think this woman's mad. So what do we get from these verses? Say people have little faith, and yet they are praying without ceasing. And when the Lord answers their prayers, they're stunned. 16. But Peter continued knocking. When they'd opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. What did they expect? They'd been praying for him. He's arrived. 13, 14. She's been able to identify his voice. And after some time knocking at the door, they finally open the door and they are astonished. Again, this demonstrates the complexity of Bible-believing Christians. Look at Romans 7. I do that which I don't want to do, and what I do I don't do. A wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I've made the case, have I not, over the last several weeks, that we are complex people. We do have two natures, and here this early church meant well, the heart's in the right place, and yet at the same time when great news like this reaches their ears, they can't believe it. And I'll close today's broadcast in verse 17, if I may. But he, beckoning unto them with the hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Go show these things unto James and to the brethren. And he departed and went into another place. And that's the end of Peter. Until Acts chapter 15. And after Acts 15, we don't read of Peter until he writes first and second Peter. But he beckoning unto them with the hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Give God the glory, and he certainly does. And he said, go show these things unto James, the Lord's half-brother, and to the brethren, other Jewish leaders. And he departed and went into another place. So 17 verses from Acts chapter 12. Much ground, as always, has been covered. But Peter arrives, he leaves, and we'll pick it up next time in verse 18 in the context of what is going to occur with Peter's escape. But I still put the case to you all, if I may, that had he been the Pope of Rome, had Simon Peter been this great leader, had he been the so-called vicar of Christ, would it not have been more conceivable for Herod, known as Archelaus, to have detained him, first of all, interrogated him, tortured him, and then put him to death, like he did with James, verse 2, the son of Zebedee. But no, he goes for James, and then he goes for Peter, which suggests to me, also from verse 17, James mentioned in the Brethren that the early church had many leaders, elders. And that's why I've been making the case that there is no one man calling the shots. There's no one man past, if you will, only elders. But I've said more than I wanted to say for today's broadcast, and I hope the Lord has blessed today's broadcast, and we'll pick it up next time in Acts chapter 12, verse 18.